Hi there. Thanks for joining and welcome to Dharma Punks New York. I'm Josh, and this is our Tuesday evening gathering online. And we have a few Dharma Punks events coming up. The information is on both dharmapunksnyc.com down in Philadelphia on June 17th, Philly day long. It would be really kind of you to consider uh, donating to support the podcast and uh, my work as a Buddhist pastor. Everything's by donation only. So the Venmo is uh, Dharma Punks NYC and the PayPal button is on the website and on the podcast page. So thank you for your support. And daily pause, 8 a.m. Kathy leads a meditation Monday through Friday. And the Zoom link is in the chat window as well as on the Dharma Punks website. So I hope you'll... So tonight, my job is to bombard you with some of the just a little bit of the vast array of information that just shows how truly subjective and unrealistic our experience truly is. Famous work with Tursky and Kahneman, who in the early 70s, I believe it was 1974, they wrote a famous clinical paper called Judgment Under Uncertainty, where they introduce the idea of cognitive biases, which are these implicit, meaning they're kind of baked in, they're not, we're not conscious of them, uh, ways that we habitually distort our views of the world around us and other people. Our brains have limited resources to construct a sense of reality, and we use fast heuristics fast cognitive processes to make inferences around about the world, but we often get it very wrong. It leads to false conclusions. Now, some of the most basic, famous ones are things like confirmation bias, where we look for information that supports our pre-existing views, and we discount information that challenges our beliefs. So if you're in a debate with someone and someone, a third person brings up information that validates your views, you just having a normal human brain are likely to agree that that information is important. But if somebody brings up information that discounts your beliefs or my beliefs, we'll likely discount it challenge its veracity. Uh, anchoring bias, we're overly influenced by the first piece of information we hear. So if I tell you I've got a pair of pants to sell you for $100, you, you might not think very much of it. But if I tell you that I have a pair of pants that used to be 200 but now you can have it for 100 200 is lodged in your brain, and you'll suddenly think these pants are a great deal, even though there's no difference between the first pair and the second. I've simply created an anchor in your mind that tells you that the pants are really worth 200, where in fact I could have 
said anything. The halo effect. People tend to deduce other people's intelligence and kindness by looking at their physical traits. Those perceived to be extremely attractive are assumed to be intelligent and kind. Um, Self-serving biases. We tend to give ourselves credit for our successes but we tend to blame our failures on external courses, uh, external factors. So if I pass a test, it's because I studied hard. But if I fail a test, it's because the textbook wasn't written clearly or a teacher wasn't very good. I'm not going to go through them. Just trust me. Look at the work of, of Daniel Kahneman or anyone else in cognitive science, and you'll find a list of unending list of all the different cognitive biases that distort are the way we assess the world around us. But there's one that's one bias that's extremely pervasive that I think everyone should know about. It's going to sound a little subtle at first, but the more we unpack it, the more um, vibrant it becomes. We evaluate ourselves in a completely different way than we evaluate other people. It's really remarkably different, and very few people note this. But when we evaluate other people, what we do is we look at their actions. So uh, if somebody rear-ends you, you might deduce that that person, that other driver, was uh, is reckless, uncaring, dangerous, uh, doesn't, uh, uh, is foolhardy, uh, is aggressive. What you're doing is building a view of the other person's internal states from their outside behavior. They had an accident, but we conclude, we jump to these conclusions based on people's behaviors. But when it comes to assessing ourselves, we do the exact opposite. We don't look at our actions at all. We look at what our thoughts are. So if if I, I don't really drive, but if I did rear end someone, or anyone else, you know, rear end someone, we're more likely than to uh, think, well, I didn't intend to do it. I'm in a rush. I'm stressed out. It clearly was an oversight. I'm not a bad person. Uh, I don't know why that person, why the other driver is angry. So in other words, we assess other people by their behaviors, but we assess ourselves not by our behaviors, but by our thoughts and intentions. We look inwards when we're assessing ourselves, but we look outwards when we're assessing other people. And this is actually a pretty big deal. Um, So tragically, uh, studies show that most people are far harder in judging not only strangers than they are in judging people that they know very well, that they can somewhat infer their internal states, but also juries that are judging people from different ethnicities, they assume they can't understand the other ethnicities' internal states. So very often juries will render biased, prejudiced uh, verdicts because they'll simply look at the actions without inferring any possibility of uh, uh, harmless intentions. We put so much trust 
in the veracity and accuracy of what's going on inside of our heads. We believe what we tell ourselves about ourselves. Princeton psychologist uh, Emily Pronin calls this the blind spot bias, which is almost everyone tends to note that everyone else has biases except themselves. And there's countless examples of this. Coaches who pick their daughters for the soccer team uh, will justify their choices. But if you ask them to talk about another coach who chooses his daughter uh, for the the soccer team or her daughter, um, that the coach will say, oh, they're biased. So uh, psychiatrists and doctors acknowledge that gifts from pharmaceutical companies can sway how doctors prescribe, yet when they take gifts, they will deny that it has any impact on them. So everybody else, uh, this is studies of doctors and psychiatrists, will say every other doctor and psychiatrist is biased but me. People... Uh, invariably claim that commercials don't influence them, but people will at the same time acknowledge that commercials influence everybody else. So we all assume that everyone else is a lemming following and doing what they're told, except for us who are impervious to biases. And in fact, studies show that everyone is can be primed or swayed by uh, commercials. If you're in a store and you're in a rush, it doesn't matter how unbiased you think you are, you're going to choose the product that you've been primed to purchase by the commercials you've seen in the past. The American Political Science Review showed that only 3.5% of Americans will consider generally voting against their political party. You know, like 95% of voters vote for their party, no matter who, as we've seen in recent elections, no matter who's running. Yet, if you ask people, why do they vote for that specific candidate, they'll never say, well, it's because they're a Republican or because they're a Democrat. They'll simply say, they'll list off all of this reasonings to justify their choice, because none of us want to acknowledge just how biased and primed we are to make the choices we make. All of this creates what Nicholas uh, Epley, uh, who's a famous psychologist, called a kind of inherent self-righteousness. We, in his paper, The Feeling of Holier Than Now, he notes that self-assessments of superiority and are pretty much everywhere in almost all human domains. Other examples is the delusion we all have that our tastes are objective. The music I like and the films I like are objectively better than the music and films that you like, unless, of course, you like the same exact music and films that I like. We all believe that there is something inherently right and correct about the way we view and assess reality. And if anybody else differs, there's something wrong. So classic example, 
um, uh, with the subjective field of art criticism. Uh, art critics, even though if you tell them uh, all criticism of art or evaluation of art is inherently subjective, which it is, they'll still argue and write their reviews as if their interpretations of any work is inherently correct and that the, the art that they like is inherently better than the work of other art that they don't like. Um, uh, George Carlin, one of the great American psycho uh, comedians, famously said that people who drive slower than we drive are idiots and people who drive faster than we drive are maniacs. If you like uh, the air conditioner set uh, at a lower temperature than I do, it's because you're indulgent. But if you like the air conditioner to be set at a higher temperature than I do, it's because you're cheap and a masochist. So we all have this delusion that our sense of what's the right amount, the right temperature, the right way to the right films, the right music, the right uh, way to cook food, the right cuisine, that there's something inherently correct and that our tastes cannot in any way be biased or subjective. We all want to believe that what's going on in our heads is inherently true. Uh, I remember uh, very well back in the 1980s when I was in college and I was in a punk band and I knew I had to secretly withhold my love of, because uh, I'm a New York Jew, my, I really, even then, even though I loved punk bands, I also loved Steely Dan, which was not a punk band. But I didn't want anybody to know because I knew I'd be set up for ridicule, but I didn't care because I thought Steely Dan was a legitimate group. Yet at the same time, I had a friend in the band who I knew withhold from others his love of Billy Joel and Phil Collins music. And even though I was aware that I had my secret love from Steely Dan, which I believe was correct, I would relentlessly make fun of this guy's love for Phil Collins. And he would relentlessly make fun of my love for Steely Dan. We both believed our tastes were objectively better. And to this day, I do still believe that Steely Dan is objectively better than Phil Collins. But many people out there will argue with me. So um, even as I said, experts who work in entirely subjective domains still believe that their tastes are true. Pierre Bourdieu, a famous French uh, theoretician, noted that <clears throat> while we all tend to believe that our taste is objective, in fact, there's nothing objective whatsoever. In his book, Distinction, he showed that people simply like the things that are consistent with the class or the subculture that they belong to. We choose the clothing, the books, the music simply to reproduce and forge alliances. And he also showed that uh, in any society, it's the upper class uh, that has a cultural capital that generally decides what high 
taste is, but that there's nothing inherently high or aesthetic or uh, important about their tastes. It's simply that they choose things that are different than the proletariat like. Um, so going deeper into the kind of naive realism, the naive sense of objectivity. The founder of cognitive neuroscience was a guy named Michael Gazzaniga. He's like pretty much uh, easily one of the most, the five most important uh, neuropsychologists of the 20th century. In the 1970s, he showed that the part of the brain that explains what we do and why we do it is very different than the parts of the brain that actually initiate our behaviors. In fact, he said that the brain has what's called, an, he called an interpreter. It's a storytelling function that whose job it is to explain why we're doing the things that we do. The interesting thing about this observation was that Gazaniga showed that more frequently than you could possibly be believe, the part of the brain that thinks and explains why we're doing what we're doing has no clue why we're doing what we're doing. In fact, all it's doing is guessing why we're reaching for a glass of water, why we are choosing to leave the house for a meal or staying in to cook food, why we're uh, deciding to turn on the television. All of these impulses are from pre-conscious regions of the brain. Benjamin Labette showed, in fact, that almost all behavioral impulses occur a half a second before we become consciously aware. So we have no clue of the processes that make our decision. We simply guess and we come up with reasons that why we do the things we do. The interpreter essentially very quickly comes up with a rationalization for our actions. But sadly, uh, a lot of the time, it the uh, this region, Broca, Wernicke's in the left uh, frontotemporal region of the brain really doesn't have any clue why the subcortical regions of the striatum, the basal ganglia, the amygdala, the hypothalamus are actually choosing or why we're suddenly angry at someone. We'll come up with a justification without realizing that they reminded us of a teacher from third grade who flunked us, or they looked at us the same way that an ex looked at us. We just come up all the time with very fast uh, explanations of why we do the things we do. There's even a wonderful paper by Gantman and Andreas called, Why Did I Do That? Explaining actions activated outside of awareness. And what they basically concluded is we have, in quotes, we have little introspective access to the mental processes that lead to our choices and behaviors. The explanations we provide are confabulations. They're basically lies. Nisbet and Wilson, two giants in clinical psychology, wrote a paper called Telling More Than We Can Know. And they note that 
when individuals are primed to make choices, they will come up very quickly with rationalizations and invariably deny that their choices were influenced even after the clinician will show them how their choices were primed. Still, people won't believe it. They'll still believe their rationalizations. Now, some people assume that self-enhancement plays a big role in these false beliefs. We're motivated to view ourselves positively. And since biases are undesirable, we believe we need to believe that our perceptions are accurate and free of bias because we want to view ourselves in a positive light. But um, uh, in fact, uh, when wonderful studies, though, can show just how skewed our beliefs about ourselves are, here's a, a, a very simple one. When asked when when people are asked whether they intend to donate to a charity in the following year, 83% will say they will. Yeah, I'm going to donate. I'm going to donate to my favorite charity. And when they're asked how many other people will donate to charity, people will say roughly 56%. So 83% will say, I'm going to donate. But they'll also say 56% of other people are going to donate. In other words, we all believe, <laughs> most of us believe that we're more charitable than other people because we rate ourselves more likely to donate. Donate, But here's the thing. When you look at uh, the info at the end of the year, only 40% actually donate. And it doesn't, you know, so we donate at half the amount that we tell other people and ourselves that we're going to donate. We overemphasize, we exaggerate by double how charitable we are, and but we only slightly overestimate how charitable other people are. Now, there's an implicit bias if I've ever heard one. Um, and then, of course, on the other hand, sometimes people's thoughts about themselves are what we call dysphoric, needlessly bleak. This is the prevalence of imposter syndrome that so many people with insecure attachment have, where despite having many years at a job where they're doing a fine, they're living up to all their employer's expectations, they do good work, yet they still tell themselves that they're a fraud, that they're not good at their job, and if anybody really paid attention, they get fired. So, between the overinflation, where we all want to believe that we're kinder, more uh, objective, and more accurate and more charitable than we actually are, but at times in other domains, we'll be, I'm actually far more shit than I really think I am. So there's this constant uh, inaccuracy in our self appraisal. In fact, research by Helzer and Dunning. Uh, showed that in making self-predictions, we focus or the responses are simply aspirational. We respond and think about ourselves simply in terms of what we believe other people would uh, approve of. So sometimes people uh, self-exaggerate because they think that's what's aspirational. Sometimes people uh, belittle themselves because they also think belittling themselves is somehow aspirational. 
Um, there's another bias called the planning fallacy, which shows that people almost invariably underestimate how long it takes them to do any task. We all tend to believe that we're faster and more efficient than we are. Our intentions and explanations vary significantly from the way we actually act. It's the same with others as it is with ourselves. So when other people tell you that they're going to change or do better, that doesn't mean they don't intend to. But again, what people intend and what they believe they can do often varies from the parts of their brain that actually initiate their actions. So many relationships are spent where each person constantly claims that they'll try to do better, but over time, their behaviors remain exactly the same. And that doesn't mean they were even necessarily lying. They were believing and reporting their intentions. Obliviousness, I think you're familiar with that word, denotes how truly unaware of our actions and behaviors we are. And one psychologist noted, I can't remember his name, it occurs most prominently in activities involving drudgery, repetition, routine, times that we're tired, times that we're under stress, and triggered states. In other words, almost all of the time, we are oblivious to what we're doing. And that's why when we evaluate ourselves, we can easily focus on our thoughts and our intentions, but it's very, very difficult for us to actually be aware of what we're actually doing while we're doing it. It's easy for us to pay attention to what other people do, but it's very difficult for us to pay attention to the things that we're doing. This is why in the Dharma, the most foundational practice is sati or mindfulness where the Buddha said the foundation of the Dharma is simply knowing, am I sitting, am I standing, am I walking, am I talking, am I eating, am I going to the bathroom, am I working, am I resting, uh, what am I doing, what am I feeling in my body, and so on and so forth. So huge amount of the Buddha's teaching was acknowledging <laughs> that people are lost in thought, oblivious to the ways they actually act, constantly misinterpreting who they are, believing the hype, but not actually seeing the way they act in relation to each other. And so for the Buddha to develop apamata or uh, spiritual uh strength and efficacy and morality we have to start simply by paying attention to what we're doing rather than listening to the stories that we tell in our head about what our goals and intentions are antonio damasio another giant in the field of cognitive neuroscience in his famous book Descartes era showed that we don't really act in accordance with how we think we act in accordance with how we feel feelings are the very fast reaction to environmental changes and so feelings are the precursors the way we act. And the Buddha said the exact 
same thing in the famous Paticca Samapada, the story of how we, how each uh, action comes to pass. Buddha says, uh, we make contact with an environment, a situation. We have a feeling in our bodies of comfort or discomfort, very basic feelings. I'm I like what's going on. I don't like what's going on. And from those feelings come all of our behaviors, our tana, our cravings, and all of our stories after that, which is upadana and ditti, the stories we tell about ourselves and the things we do and our views and belief. And the Buddha says that all of these explanations, this ditti, are essentially delusions. If you want to get to the truth, he said, the place to focus on is the feelings we have. And I'm going to give you an example of just how important that is. So if you want to change a behavior in yourself or another person, suppose you decide that you want to start, uh, I don't know, uh, you want to start uh, a new hobby uh, because you hear it's a good idea to have a hobby like uh, painting or playing a musical instrument. Or you want to start going to the gym because you hear that going to the gym is good for cardio and helps release endorphins and anandamides, which is a natural antidepressant. Now, you can be told all these good reasons to have a hobby or to go to the gym, but the part of your brain that's listening to those region, reasons is very different from the striatum, which is actually the subcortical region that activates your behaviors. In fact, the striatum will be completely indifferent to all those good reasons. So it's a waste of time trying to get someone to do something simply generally by listing all the reasons they should. Think of everybody who smokes. You could spend the rest of your life explaining the carcinogens, but they'll still smoke because when they think of a cigarette, what happens? They feel good. The idea of smoking makes their bodies feel good. When people know that they should uh, have, a, have a hobby or go to the gym, but they don't do it, that's because the idea of developing a new hobby or the idea of going to the gym creates stress, discomfort in their bodies. So we follow what our feelings dictate. If you want to help somebody do something different or change the way you do something, it's important to associate this new behavior with positive feelings. And this has been shown by so many robust studies that the important that if you really want to motivate someone to do something different, help them visualize an outlandishly wonderful, beautiful visual image of what will be the outcome if they start playing the flute, I don't care, whatever behavior you want to initiate. Just have them visualize being on a stage, having people love them. It doesn't matter even how unreasonable or unrealistic the idea is. Just create an image in their head that they associate with this new behavior. And if that image makes them feel 
good in their bodies, makes them feel excited, that's the way you'll motivate them to change. Not by giving them all these reasons, because the reasons are not reaching the striatum, but images of positive outcomes, guess what? They are registered by the striatum, and people will get excited and will pursue new endeavors, whether it's eating healthily or uh, uh, going out for walks or whatever, they'll do it if they stumble upon just the right image that conjures up really positive, pleasant feelings in their body. But simply telling people, hey, you should do this or you should do that won't work if they still associate this new behavior with feelings of stress, disinterest, um, tightness, discomfort. So anyway, that was a long talk about how not to trust your brain, <laughs> how not believe your intentions so much, how to, in fact, motivate and really interpret your behaviors based on the way you feel about uh, endeavors, not what you think about them. And likewise, how to go about helping other people if you want motivate them for change. So I hope something in tonight's talk was worthy of your reflection. And now what we're going to do is we are going to meditate developing awareness of feelings because that's really where it's at. So find a really comfortable seated position. And you don't have to be on screen. So if you want, you can switch off the video feed or you can turn your laptop away or you can do anything so that you are, uh, you don't feel monitored. Unless, of course, you like to be visible when you meditate. I wouldn't personally. I just do it because I have to. I'm the teacher. But I totally understand why people would switch off the camera while they're meditating. So when you get to a really comfortable position, whether it's on a couch, a chair, lying on a floor, um, and what I'd invite you to do is close your eyes and... Bring your attention into a part of your body that you're normally only remotely aware of. For example, bring your attention into the, your right foot. Most of us know we have a right foot, assuming we do have a right foot. We vaguely know we have a right foot, but we really don't bring our attention into the sensations that actually are being relayed by long C nerve fibers up into the spinal cord, up to the thalamus, to the somatosensory lobe. So try to bring your awareness just into the sensations that are right now 
signaling how your right foot feels. And if there's anything in your right foot that you can relax, release, soften, make comfortable, just do that. If the toes need to be stretched and then released, if you want to arch or stretch your right sole, do that. And then bring your attention to the left foot. Find the sensations. And then as you become aware of how the, the blinking pulsing sensory impressions of your left foot. Try to uh, use your awareness to relax and make your left foot feel as comfortable as it can. And then bring your awareness back to your right calf. Just notice the sensations there, and if there's anything that you can do to help the calf just truly release. And then bring your attention to the right. Calf, and then just become intimately acquainted with the sensations, any flickering sensations of tightness or ease, heat or cold, muscle movements, anything you can, just bring awareness of your right calf up close to your awareness and then whatever you need to do to relax it, do so. And so continue doing that. Your right and then left thighs, your right and then left buttocks. When you get to your belly, see if you can really feel the sensation of the inhalation expanding the belly. So you really want to soften it. And then as you exhale, feel the energy in your belly releasing, so, uh, retreating. 
So the in-breath is associated with expansion. And the belly is very soft to allow the it to expand as much as it needs. And then when you breathe out, just feel this release of the muscles. And then as you move up to the chest, it's the same process. Feel the in-breath expanding or the energy moving up into the chest. And then with the exhalation, feel a release So spend a little time with your right and left hands and arms the same way you relaxed and became aware of the sensations of your legs. Bring the same caring, attentive awareness to your arms and then up your neck. And finally, to the sensations of your Head, when you get there, spend some time really breathing into the eyes and allowing the eyes to settle. Finding a comfortable position for the mouth and the tongue. And just cultivate also an expression <clears throat> that's not forced but feels easeful and appropriate or cultivating inner ease.
Now we could, of course, spend a lot of time doing this practice where we're inhabiting and inclining the body to a state of comfort. But tonight's practice is going to be awareness of feelings. The Buddha called Vedana Nusati, awareness of feelings. And this is the most important way to get any kind of accurate understanding of whether or not how we're going to act, whether we're going to pursue goals, how we're going to respond to situations is simply by noting the what Damasio called the somatic markers or the feelings that influence all of our choices and all of our behaviors. So it works like this. When we have a feeling about something, it's either going to be comfortable or uncomfortable, or it could be neutral, no shift. But we're going to focus on feelings of comfort and discomfort. So when you're comfortable, you'll notice your muscles relax. There'll be a sense of ease. You'll start to feel like you do when you uh, come home after a hard day and you flop onto a couch and you feel you've accomplished everything or either a feeling of relaxation or you might feel a feeling of of excitement, positive, a positive feeling of I want to do this or I want to do that. This, this energy that's moving upwards, like when we hear something really fun that we'd like to pursue, when somebody that we like asks us to go out and do something. On the other hand, sometimes ideas and plans and goals activate feelings that are very uncomfortable, and that feeling will dissuade us, will influence not to proceed. We avoid the ideas, the plans, the goals, the events that activate feelings of anxiety or feelings of outright uh, anger. So if a plan or an idea creates in your body that kind of tensing and clenching of muscles in your arms or legs, this feeling of your brow tightening, the energy is kind of not going up, but actually moving towards the limbs and your jaws clenched, or there's just this feeling of make this go away. So all we're going to do is start by first listening to the sounds and observing the feelings in your body and just see if you can, on an ongoing basis, note how any new sound or feeling 
or a sensation in your body, I should say, makes you feel? Does your does your muscles tighten or relax? Does your belly soften or tighten? Does your breath relax or does it become uh, uh, caught? Just get to know <clears throat> your emotionally physical responses to everything. And if you do that for a little while, then you can move on to visualizing anything, any choice you're facing, any activity, any endeavor. And without any bias, without any story of whether you should or shouldn't do it, just note how each image you hold in your mind's eye, how your body responds. So if the idea is to go on a trip, just visualize the journey and see how your body responds. And that's all we're going to do. We're just going to allow anything, but then instead of getting caught up in the stories, the ideas, as we hold each image in our mind, we're simply going to know how it makes us feel. And so I'm going to let the uh, practice be silent for a while so you can work with any material you want.
for the last uh, exercise, if you want to try visualizing a positive outcome associated with any new behavior you'd like to develop, see if you can visualize really rewarding, upbeat image that represents how an endeavor might play out in your life. Visualize people recognizing your perseverance. Visualize a state of being filled with pride or feeling really good. See if you can conjure an image that you can associate with some new endeavor and see if that image can conjure in your body positive feelings of excitement or safety. If you can stumble on just the right image to hold in mind, over time you can use it to motivate and sustain a new endeavor. All right, so 
Thank you for your practice.